Hmm. Are you sure about that? Is that what you think? Is that so? Hi, I'm Sokka, the host of Sokka's Is That So, a show where we challenge conventional wisdom across a range of industries, hoping to get you to ask better questions and not take things at face value. I'm originally from Botswana and Nigeria. However, I've had the chance to travel through Europe, North America, and Latin America to have many of my assumptions challenged and combat my biases. The goal of the show is to help you learn along with me as we challenge more conventional norms. We're recording the show during the coronavirus, so hopefully you should have more than enough time to listen to these. Let's get started. On this week's episode, we'll be talking about the myths surrounding financial literacy and education for wealth. I got curious about this topic while at a recent meetup where I met an acquaintance of mine who was really excited about a recent job offer he got last week. After struggling to make ends meet for a few years, he was ecstatic about the possibility of finally being able to accumulate wealth for himself and his family. I'll finally be able to save some money for retirement, man, and get my kids into a better school. Yeah, it's a bad impersonation, I know. For some reason, I couldn't help but think, this guy thinks he's on his way to wealth because of a few extra grand? Does he really know what wealth is? And if he doesn't, how could he ever educate his kids or the next generation on what wealth really is? Even more intriguing to me was the thought that simply because he makes more money doesn't mean he'll be good with it either. I'm good with money. I've been dealing with it for a long time. And now that I'll have access to more, I'm certainly on my way to creating wealth. Hmm, is that so? I mean, maybe access to better financial services or a pay bump isn't really what leads to wealth. Does he know the difference between wealth and income? Were we educated on how to build wealth? And does culture have a role in how we view wealth? After all, I was always told, you know, go to school, get a good job, and that's the way to a financially successful life. As the conversation went on, something else he mentioned piqued my interest or curiosity. I'll handle the money because women are too good with finances. Or should I say they aren't too good with finances? Hmm. Well, I'm not so sure about that. We might assume that women aren't good with money because they aren't typically seen in Wall Street or in traditionally financial-centric sort of media outlets. You know, that might not necessarily be the actual reality. Maybe we're just conditioned to think that women aren't good with money. Myth number one. Women aren't good with finances. I mean, this one is straight out of the 1950s. I mean, women aren't good with finances? That's kind of crazy. They'll be inclined to spend it on shoes or bags and all that kind of stuff. At least that's what the typical notion is. But finances are such a diverse thing. It's an array of financial jobs or different tasks that requires different skills. You can't say that one gender is better than the other. It'd be like saying women are better at entertainment. You know, it's very much dependent on your particular genre, what you like, what you don't like, and things like that. You know, there is some truth based on the statistics saying that men, on average, are only 30% financially illiterate compared to 35% of women. That's if you look at it from a global average. But there might be multiple reasons as to why that is. You know, men are also by far more likely to gamble which is by no means a good investment. Anyone who thinks that gambling is a skill and a way to earn extra money 
look up the term gambler's fallacy. That's something that's more prevalent in men than women. Women are also a bit more risk averse and less likely to invest, although they also have less money to invest. This could be because of the wage gap and other societal norms, but there is some evidence to suggest that the wage gap is actually a myth. Who knows? That's actually a discussion for another time. But these are all the things that make it more pervasive and make us try and, or at least think about the gender disparities in terms of financial literacy and wealth. You know, women are also more likely to buy clothes, food, and other necessities, whereas men are much more likely to splurge, splurge out on things like televisions, stereos, cars, you know, fancy things that might not necessarily be as necessary. So these are just some of the dynamics which perhaps we don't think about as much. There's no real indication that women are worse when it comes to finances than money. Put it this way, if I had a choice of who to give my money to, someone who is much more likely to invest in the necessities and not necessarily splurge on things that might not be needed, that's where I'd likely give my money or that's where I'd likely invest my money. Well, let's look at number two. Because I'm good with money, I know how to manage my finances. This brings me to my second point, or second myth. The idea of being good with money. I mean, plenty of people are good with money. They might not only buy discounted foods, you know, but they spend several hours going to different shops to find the best deals on toothpaste, whatever it is. These are all things that people who are considered good with money do. But this is only one aspect of a huge financial job which is part of building wealth. You know, that's just cautious spending. You can be great at getting a bank for your buck and making your money last longer. But here's the thing. Eventually, money runs out. No point in being good with money if there's no money to begin with. You know, managing finances and building wealth is a lot more broad. You need to have a flow of money coming in, coming out, preparing for the future, money for now. You need to know the best way to control your finances. And that doesn't mean being averse to spending. You just have to spend on the right things to generate assets which give you more money or cash flows and ultimately grow your wealth. You know, you might be better off paying that extra money in order to buy something of high quality, which saves you time, which allows you to actually make more money. You could put a couple of grand in the bank, not touch it for years and think you're doing great. You're not because inflation is a hell of a lot higher than any bank interest will get you. You store that money away like that and it's dropping in value each and every day. Managing finances means getting the best value and use out of your money. Knowing when to use cash, when to use credit, it can be a much smarter thing to buy something with a loan than actually use your own money to invest in something. Number three, you need money to make money. There is a bit of truth to this. I mean, you don't need money to make money specifically, but let's be more precise. You don't need a lot of money to make money. If you work for an hour, two hours, whatever it is, you get money in your bank and then you start with something. But there is outsized gains. The more money you have, if something goes up by like 10% or 20%, that's a lot more in absolute terms than if you invested or if you got money that is much lower in absolute terms. So if you invested 10,000 versus 100,000 and they both gain 10%, those are very different numbers. So there is truth to the fact that if you need or if you want to make more money, you should have more money to start with. 
But there are things you can do. So for instance, if you start saving sooner, what happens is you can start to grow and compound over time. You know, you put a little bit aside and you think it's nothing. You put in some more, but you say, oh man, it'll be so long before this is worth any real wealth. And that day will probably never come. You think it's pretty pointless. But all the time, the savings are creeping up on you, creeping slowly, sinisterly in the background, watching you from afar, waiting for its moment, and then bang. Oh, that's a nice bit of money I got there. And the dividends are starting to add up. You know, every million dollars is just a collection of one million single dollars or pounds. The amount of millionaires who have started with nothing actually exceeds those that inherited their wealth. How many times have you heard of the rags to riches story? Actually, and how many times have you heard of the people that have won a lot of money and gambled it all and then just won it back again? You know, they start from zero several times, so it is possible. On the other hand, there are people that win the lottery and lose it all in a few years, in fact, even days at times, and are left with nothing. Having money is by no means the be-all and end-all of making money. There are things that are within your control. Effort, consistency, patience, assets, these things lead to wealth. Number four, let's talk about culture and how culture plays a role in financial literacy. You know, culture just means the way we do things. And it influences everything from the way we view money, how we save it, how we interact with it. And there are many different aspects of it as well. Have you heard of the term old money? I mean, this is money inherited through previous generations, people born into rich families. They may have never struggled for money or wanted for anything that they couldn't have, like food, clothes, shelter. They've taken all these things for granted. Your typical person born with a silver spoon, so to speak. But then there's also new money, and that's money made in their lifetimes. You know, money that wasn't there until someone took some sort of action in order to earn it through work or investment, bank robberies, whatever. Just these two examples are different cultures that produce entirely different opinions of money. Growing up with old money essentially gives you the idea that wealth is a sort of birthright, and it's not necessarily something to worry about. It just kind of falls into place. I'm sure you could think of a lot of people that fall into this category. But then there's also new money. You know, new money is basically people that had worked for it, tried different things, risked, failed. You know, there's a whole different aspect to it. New money teaches you that money doesn't grow on trees either. It's a limited resource. You know, think about Bill Gates. He had to earn his money. He knew its value. And he makes more money every day than the average person will ever see in a lifetime. It's not just about biology that makes these two scenarios very different. You know, there are some inherent traits, um, being born into a successful family, uh, having more entrepreneurial spirit or drive. There is a societal aspect to it as well. Myth number five, access to financial instruments is the biggest barrier to creating wealth. You know, it's so easy to forget who caused the global economic crisis of the late 2000s. In a nutshell, it was pretty much people that had access to financial instruments like loans, credit, and things like that, that didn't have the ability to pay it back. It was simply everyone getting loans, using that money to buy assets, and they leveraged themselves to crazy valuations, and they weren't able to pay it back. You know, credit can be a great tool, but it has to be used right. When used right, it's a system that allows you to purchase something that you can afford based on what you use that money for. 
but just not right now. You need time. It's very easy to get swept up in the excitement of getting a loan. You know, you're looking at money in your hand, imagining turning it into singles, swimming around in it like the movies. You know, you feel pretty rich. But you have to remember that what you're holding is debt. In fact, it's minus money. It's a mind shaft leading to ruin unless you have a plan of action on how you're going to use it, hopefully, to build wealth. For anyone listening, it's not true that the only reason you're not rich is because you can't access large amounts of funds. 81% of millionaires are actually self-made. So for every Donald Trump, there are four other millionaires who didn't inherit their wealth. They all started with nothing and they built it. You know, they had the smarts, the ability consistently to make wise decisions and to grow their money. You know, at this point, I think it's relevant for us to probably speak to someone that knows a thing or two about building money, growing wealth, educating people about it. Why don't we speak to Patricia and see what her thoughts are on some of these myths? Patricia, thanks for joining the show. Thank you for having me. Is that so? Um, We are going to be talking about the misconceptions and the myths around financial literacy around the world. And you're an excellent guest because you live, you breathe these types of things every day. And so we'll just kick right off into it. I mean, one of the first things that come to mind is, you know, people dealing with money on a day-to-day basis, they think they have financial literacy skills, Mm. right? But statistics show that only one out of every three people around the world actually has financial literacy Mm. skills. Mm. Um, What do you think uh, perpetuates that myth that because I handle money, oh, I have some sort of financial literacy skills or I'm I'm able to manage money just by simply being with Mm. it? Why do you think Mm. people think that or or believe that? Um, Well, As you said, you're dealing with it all the time. So you think because you're dealing with it, somehow you're in control of it. But as you know, debt levels are spiraling out of control. Um, Young people even are getting themselves into debt, living off their credit cards, um, not particularly well managing their student loans, taking out extra loans and not understanding what APR is, for example. Something as, as straightforward as that. Many people, um, you know, in terms of mass, the annual percentage rate, um, I was shocked when I came back to this country because I've been living in, in Germany for some time. And there they don't actually take out much credit. They deal with everything in cash. And in this society, we are taught to, you know, have credit cards when in fact it's a debt card. Let's be honest. It's a whole word play. You know, you're, you're in credit, but you're actually getting yourself into debt. So um, coming from living in a society where they deal with everything in cash and coming back here and realizing how so many people are getting these, what you call CCJs, um, uh, taken to, to court because they're in debt, they're, they're, they're spiraled out of control. Uh, because most people, in fact, you know, we're just living just above the, the, the line you need to, to, to keep things going. And people want things, and so they're buying things, but the income that's coming in, the salary is not enough. And so they're living off their credit card or then taking out extra loans. And so that's when I was shocked when I first came back here and I kept seeing, you know, do you have problems with CCJ? And I was saying to myself, well, what is this CCJ? So this is something that really hit me when I came back to this country and saw how many people were having problems managing their debt. And it causes a lot of Financial uh, financial problems cause a lot of mental stress, a lot of anxiety. Um, so I think to be more informed about what your finances mean, how you make money, how you save money, how you invest money, um, will be better for your well-being as well. You mentioned something that was very interesting, which was 
almost around the marketing part of things, right? You were being very transparent when you said this is a debt card, not necessarily a credit card, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think of the ways in which we have been, I don't want to say conditioned, but we relate. We have have been conditioned. Well, we have been conditioned, yes. (laughs) But the marketing messaging or the ease of use of money um, has become very different compared to what it was 10, 15 years ago. So now I use contactless. I just, you know, have a tap. Tap, tap. You You don't pay out the money. You don't see it. Exactly. So, you know, all these things means that you don't really, you know, kind of physically bond with it. And so it's just like you're spending. It's almost like you have to spend to save. You know, buy one, get one free. But in fact, you end up spending more in order to get more. So it's almost encouraging you buy more and you'll save more. But of course, when you're buying, um, when you're not investing in an asset, something that will then appreciate over time or, you know, for instance, a, a flat, a house, something like that. So if you're just buying consumables and then you're, you're going to get something else again, then you're not actually, you're, you're reducing your net worth, yeah, by just spending on, on clothes and things that will go out of fashion, you'll get something else again. So, uh, yeah, it, there is a lot of conditioning around money. And that's something, I mean, it's not something that I've, I've had to learn late in life. Um, I think particularly, you know, I come from an academic background, you know, educationalist. And, you know, the idea was you go to school, you do well, you get good grades, you get a good job and you earn money. That's not the case anymore. That's not the case. You have people who've gone to school, put their nose down, got good grades, got it, and they're still not working um, because the whole world of work is changing rapidly. And so, for instance, you've got children who are going to primary school now. By the time they finish school, uh, they predict with the whole advent of the fourth industrial revolution coming rapidly going on to the fifth, that you know about 65% of the jobs will not be here. They will be automated or changed radically. So, but one of the things that will be around, we will have to have some way of um, a transaction uh, where we give something for something else in return. Um, and if we're not bartering, you know, eggs for consultancy or, you know, a hairdo for clothes. Some people are doing that, by the way. Some people are actually going back to bartering. But <laughs> in the meantime, we'll have, whether it's cryptocurrency or, or whatever it is, we will have some sense of, of, of a money transaction. But I think in terms of education, it goes deeper than that. I think it's about what we hold dear, what we value um, and worth and value and putting a figure on that. So, for instance, why I'm saying that is, for instance, women in particular, um, you know, we have gender inequality pay gaps. Women, you know, got the same qualifications as men, doing the same work as men. And yet, in this 21st century, we have massive pay gaps uh, between women and men, and they're doing exactly the same work, come through the same system. So what is that about? I think in the end, it's also, apart from whether you want to call it sexism or, or, or gender discrimination, it's also to do with women um, not feeling worthy and that we need to um, be uh, more assertive about our value, our worth. And so, for instance, that recent thing on the BBC where that woman was being paid, you know, £400 a thing and the other one was paying three. I mean, what is that about? And, and everybody was okay with it until she raised it. So, um, you know, it's, it's, it's this whole wealth notion 
uh, money notion. It's something I think we need to unpack and we need to unpack it with young people in schools. I completely agree with you because this is something that's not traditionally taught to you unless your parents are savvy with yeah. investing yeah. and also depends on where you were raised, right? Exactly. I mean, if you were raised in a developing economy or in Botswana, South Africa, or yeah. in the UK, your notion and understanding of finance is very different. You know, there yeah. were some statistics I was looking at where they were showing the average literacy rates mm. uh, amongst different people in the world. Mm. And there is a stark difference between, you know, the, the UK or Europe versus African countries, for mm -hmm. instance. Um, but there's one thing that you actually said that was pretty interesting to me, which was about women specifically. Mm -hmm. You know, there is this idea or myth, I think that's perpetuated out there that Women aren't as, aren't so good with money. They're not mm. financially oh, savvy, please. right? <laughs> but it's, but you hear this, yeah. and it's kind of ridiculous. It's ridiculous. But it is ridiculous. you see things, like, you know, if you see the CEO of a bank or something like that, or you you imagine people that are good with money, the image that comes to your mind is, is a, a trader on the floor yeah. or someone that is an investor, or you know, that's what you typically think of. Why do you think um, there is that myth out there that women are not? as financially literate as men. Is it, is there well, look, a root let's of put it? it this way. I'm mm. going to turn it on its head. If we left men to run the household finances, where do you think we would be? <laughs> Good question. Mm? I mean, a woman can make, you know, you can give her two and she make five. I don't know how or where, but it's in terms of ingenuity, creativity, investing in the right way, knowing how to make a little stretch far. And one of the things I think when you've been um, in a position of, of, of not as powerful, equally powerful, you learn to make do with less. And that is like thriftiness or what you would call it, frugality. You learn to make do with less and limit your aspirations. And I think that's also to do with, with, with self-worth. Because I, I, I remember I, I had a session with um, some young students. We were working on a report um, on, on gender equality. And I said it to, to the women. I said, listen, who does the cooking in the home? Mainly, mother. Who are the top chefs? Men. Who manages all the money at home? women who are all the top bankers men who takes care of you looks after your illness and who are the women who are the top consultants in the medical men so as soon as it becomes a position of power worth and value men are there whereas if it's something that's everyday and ubiquitous i mean we what i'm talking about is not it's women so that, I think, is where the, the, the rethinking has to be. Um, and we have to rid those stereotypes, women ourselves first and girls coming up. We have to say that if we are doing something that is of equal worth and equal value, we should be paid equally. I think that's a great point, actually. I mean, that's something we don't necessarily think about. Now that you've put it into those two distinct lanes, right? When there's someone of power, then we ascribe it to men. When it's everyday sort of things, it's usually women. And why there's that chasm between the two, I guess it's something that people just don't really think about. I personally haven't even thought about it in those mm. rails, but I, I, that's an excellent point. Mm. You, you mentioned something about people that have less, being more thrifty with money mm. and you know being a bit more savvy. Mm. Where I'm going with this is, uh, you know, I grew up in... in Botswana and in, in mm -hmm. Africa mm -hmm. and there you know they have lower incomes than in the west mm. part of the world and so people with less money obviously they're thrifty they're savvy and and the, the notion is that if you give these people um, credit cards or you give them access to a bank account or something like that 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 will instantly improve their financial literacy that that'll help them you know get to a better place financially 
is is that really the case whereby it's more so that people that are in need just need access to financial instruments and that'll help them improve their financial literacy and end up being wealthy or is it more than just access to financial instruments i think um if it was just if one became wealthy just by having access we you know it would be a different picture i think there are structures and 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 organizations that helps to perpetuate and create and build assets which can then be passed down from generation to generation i mean that's real wealth you know i'm not talking about just have earning a lot of money i'm talking about you know so you're leaving behind inheritance and that's been passed down through your generations like rothschild you know from south africa from the diamonds etc cadbury family um de beers family now, if we're talking about wealth and and how people think that's different you know so they're they're looking a long term plan whereas i think when you um are living with little you're you're talking about survival and when you're only dealing with survival that gives you i think tremendous resilience um you know you take things in your stride other things that would knock other more affluent people to one side you you will take it with your stride and you will keep going but what it does do it doesn't help you to plan far ahead you know to the next generation the next generation the difference being i would just add farmers you know for instance if you're planting a tree that might not actually flourish until well into your child's lifetime you are planning ahead you know 20 year tree that you know 20 or 30 years you are but i'm talking about say in the more urban settings so um what i've been interested in and uh, in lasted sort of about 3 years has been um pioneering this notion of education for wealth um, just before you go on to that you know a lot of people don't understand that distinction between being rich or having a high income and wealth right mm. because they're two different things yeah, yeah. in your opinion what what is the fundamental difference between those two things Well in monetary terms I think to be in the wealthy category um you're talking about more than millionaires and you're talking about assets uh that can be then as I said um sent down your generations um I think uh wealth in for me actually wealth is more than money and i want to, wanted to talk about that that's that's why you know, when i go on about education for wealth but in the more the financial sense i think you know being a high income earner mm. uh those people who are in those kind of brackets they're making sure that they're making investments you know whether it's for pension pots whether it's a, a second third or fourth home whether it's investments in other kinds of portfolios property which bring returns or investing venture capital those kinds of things they're doing that um whereas i think most of us are um have just been taught to uh become um you could even call it like a wage slave yeah, yeah. so you 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 know you're you're going incrementally up the ladder and it's very incrementally very small particularly in the UK i think in the US you have bigger jumps and 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 more scope but here um i think it is uh, very measured and very um small jumps so um wealth uh it, it, you know what i've come to understand wealth to be now is is far more encompassing than money um for instance particularly that's what i've learned from when i've been going abroad talking about or listening to people about education for wealth if you haven't got your health so if you work if you're talking about education for wealth as we have been in somewhere like the gambia 
where you haven't even got a cardiologist for the population or, you know, cancer specialists or you have, you know, all these. So what does it mean then? You go to school, you get sick, you die. So some other people are saying health is wealth. Um, in terms of from a country perspective, uh, which is what we have been doing, we've been talking about that. How is wealth created for your country? Yeah. And that's where we've been talking about, um, you know, let, let's talk about different African countries. It's not about um, aid. It's about trade and investment and taxing. You know, in other words, that your peoples are earning, whether it's as an entrepreneur or as a, a job, so that they're able to contribute to the state wealth um, so then that services can be provided. So that means that they have to have sovereignty over their vast resources. I mean, how is it you can have so many African countries that are so cash poor when they're so, you know, the, the richest, you know, it's the richest planet on, it's the richest um, continent on the planet mm. in terms of, of what it has mm. from water to oil to diamonds to coal tan to uranium to everything. So it's about... Uh, sustainable industries it's about your uh, sovereignty of your land and your waters so so we've we've been looking at education for wealth to to educate the population to see what they have and not just thinking we are poor we just need handouts from the west do you see what i'm saying i completely see what you're saying so that has been it's been actually really interesting because as i said i started with gambia which is one of the poorest countries and smallest countries in west um western uh, Africa, and I happened to have lived there for, for six years. I was the head of their top international school there. And, you know, and that's where I saw a different side of the elite and how they manage money and, and, and manage status. Um, but it wasn't until I'd come here and gone back there and this, this idea of education for wealth, because usually in, in, in developing countries, you're talking about education for poverty reduction, education for uh, higher quality, but no one is making the direct <laughs> link between if you are going to invest in all this money, how is that going to make people and your country more economically developed? You know, making those links much more explicit. And I think that is very important because you have a situation where, you know, families, villages even put together to send someone abroad to get some degree or whatever. And if they don't come back, where has all that investment gone? You know, they are leaving the country and not coming back. So what we were actually trying to talk about was how do you educate for not only individual wealth, but for a country's wealth. And even more so to that point is if a family gets together, puts their resources in one mm, person, they yeah. come over to the US, UK, mm, whatever it is, right. and they get educated, but they are still conditioned to this mentality of a salary sort of wage mm. slave. They never actually break through that income, you know, generation trap yeah. and, and become wealthy. So they're ha having to work with, I don't know, 20, 30, whatever, 50,000 pounds to try and service their quote unquote loan for their family back <laughs> at home. But the only way that they can really free those people is if they become entrepreneurs or, you know, mm. really break into that wealth yes. class that we're thinking of yeah. that allows him to actually improve the lives of the people that helped mm. him or her yeah. to get to where they're trying to get to. Um, something else that comes to mind is, is culture, mm. right? The role of culture 
in financial literacy and education. Mm. And the reason why I ask this is because, you know, in the United States, it's a, it's a big part of it. It's a very capitalistic society. Mm. And, you know, there's a big push to always educate your friends on, you know, stocks and, you know, wealth and all that kind of stuff. It's part of the culture. Mm. In Botswana, for instance, where I grew up, which actually has one of the highest, in fact, the highest uh, financial literacy rate in Africa of all the African okay. countries, it's about 55%. Even there, I didn't really hear too much about, you know, stocks and bonds and investing and those mm -hmm. types of things. So I guess my question here is the myth that culture doesn't play a role in financial literacy. What do you say to that? What role have you seen that culture plays in financial education, passing down generational wealth mm. and the, all those types of things? If we strip back culture and just use it as the way we do things, yeah? If you grow up in a family which has for generations sent their children to Eton, yeah, so it's not a question of where you're going. You're going there and therefore you're going to have friends who are at the top of the tree in terms of in top of the military, top of the medical, top of the judiciary, top of journalism. So the way you do things is you know that if you have an issue or problem, mommy and daddy's friends or your friends going to sort it out. So the way that you do things, your culture really does um makes that imprint and how you how you you move through society whether you think you're entitled or not whether you see an issue whether you think you know it can be done or not um for instance you need twenty thousand, you need a million you know most people will think well, they wouldn't even think about that because they wouldn't even know where to start whereas if you've been in that track that privileged track that culture of entitlement you know that's not an issue so therefore you can dream bigger, you can plan bigger. You can Now, if you've lived in a hand-to-mouth existence where, um, you know, it's been uh, success and failure, and if there is a failure, there isn't a cushion. I mean, because being an entrepreneur, there is failure built in. I mean, for instance, in, in my own family, um, my father actually never went to school beyond 11. But he managed to set up a business, three businesses, to finance his eight children i'm the eldest of eight um so you know <laughs> he took those risks he invested and you know in terms of he'd come from nothing but was was savvy enough to to make business and found a niche product unfortunately he went bankrupt there was no cushion for us but my mother who was a nurse um knows how to make things work, you know, <laughs> protected us so that we had our house. We weren't taken into care. We didn't lose everything. Um, but growing up from that, my, that culture was, um, you know, things can just suddenly go. So there was, you know, there wasn't a sort of, of an inheritance or, or an allowance as many of, say, my friends and my private school. I went to private school from when I was 11, so would have that. You know, they were given cars, and I think, my goodness, <laughs> we had a bike to share between four of us. So, you know, it was just like a different world. So your culture, your family set up, and you, you, the, the culture from which you plays a tremendous part in terms of how you view the world and how you therefore think you can impact the world. Now, if education is supposed to be the leveler, which they say it is, I don't think it is, but, you know, if we, let's say we that's what we want it to be, 
then it should be about unlocking people's minds to what is out there and how things can be done differently so that we we manage debt, that we learn about saving and investment, we learn about coming together and putting in our pot. And I think I'm seeing that actually, especially amongst uh, your generation, you know, like, for instance, the, the the disruption of fintech and, you know, Wealthify and all these kinds of things that you don't have to have, you know, a portfolio of 10,000 to minimum or 25,000 to invest. You could do it with a pound. And that way of how technology is, is democratizing wealth and access to information. I find that really a good thing. Yeah, I think that's a great point. In fact, I was actually thinking about that just before we had this conversation. Mm. There, there's a notion that you need to have a lot of money in order to start investing or yeah. in order to start growing your wealth. It's mm. like, well, because I can only put five pounds in today, mm. uh, I might as well not and just get that cafe latte or whatever yeah, it is. Yeah. But helping people understand the power and effects of compounding, mm. and especially once you have a family and you start to plan 20 to 30 years mm -hmm. ahead in advance, you know, it's just a different mindset, a different sort of shift in the way you you view money and and the longevity of, of money and you really start to I don't know have a different relationship with money because at the end of, of the day it is a relationship with money yeah, right everyone it's has a tool. yeah it's a tool yeah it, it, that's a mentality shift that I even had to have because there was a point in my life when I really thought money was the goal right I want to be rich enough to be able to get certain things but mm. now that I've you know had a bit of a, a change in mindset it's the tool that allow me to get freedom to be mm. able to spend my time the way I want mm. to or to give my kids a certain level of mm privilege or, or mm. that I would like them to grow mm. up with so that mm. they are not confined to this everyday uh, I need to survive kind of mentality because then you go from a world where you're constricted to a world where you look at possibilities right and you know it's a very different mindset there was something that I remember I, I read in a book called Rich Dad Poor Dad mm. or something mm. like that whereby I bought that for my son yeah I bought it for my brother <laughs> just the other week honestly yeah, yeah, and it's yeah. a great book and yeah. it was primarily around you know uh, the average person or a poor person would say oh man I can't afford that thing so I can't get it yeah. but someone that thinks in a different way would say I can't afford that but how can I afford that yeah. right because then that how? unlocks the mind how? to be creative and start to think of different ways mm. to do things right uh, but you know just thinking about trying to get someone to have that mind shift regardless of where they fall in the economic structure it seems to be a bit of a battle right you must be lucky enough to come upon this book or you must have some life experience that makes you want to change in your experience of trying to educate people to do mm. this, what's the biggest barrier you see to actually getting people to change their mind or change their their thinking about wealth, about the barriers they put they put for themselves, all those types of things? What are some things that people have put on themselves or self imposed that are not letting them start to think about wealth or growth or any of those things? Mm. Self belief. If you've been brought up to think that you're nothing and you never will amount to very much then you're not going to think big. Um, and I think that, 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 and particularly in Britain where you have a very, I still think, a rigid class structure of, you know, the working class or, you know, and the, those who are not even there and, you know, the so-called middle class and the upper than the one at the top. So I think there's quite a structure. You're supposed to know your place. So I think it is about self-belief and knowing who you are. Um, and I think once you start to tap into that, that will transform a lot. It's not just about wealth, it's around so many other different things, your relationship to yourself, your relationship to people around you, your relationship to the world. Um, there's nothing more, I think, for me, um, in terms of education, more distressing 
than seeing in the eyes of a child or young person someone who doesn't believe they can do. There's no point. They can't do it. Whatever it is, whether it's a math problem, chemistry problem, I can get a job or whatever. And and it's that. Um, for young people growing up nowadays, it's not easy. Um, I think there's a lot of pressure to achieve and to do, but the financial context of where we're living right now, for instance, when I first bought my first flat, I bought it for under 20 grand. That shows you how old I am as wow. well. And now for a young person to buy something similar, you're talking about more like 200,000. Even and, that's on the conservative yeah, side. And, and, yeah. and salaries have not gone tenfold. So, as they say, for a first-time buyer, is the average was it thirty-five or something like that? I mean, therefore, what do you do between eighteen and thirty-five? You're living at home, all those pressures. You want to have some freedom. You want to have boyfriend, girl, whatever. You're independent. Like, how are you going to do that? Where are you going to do that? How is it going to happen? So, I think it is about stepping back and 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 thinking differently. Um, so, accessing information like rich dad, poor dad challenging a lot of the myths i mean for me it's a still as i'm listening to you speak about all this i think oh gosh i've still got to do that for myself you know? <laughs> so you know i don't want to say for things for other people that i don't think it's been a hard and long journey um but i think it is it is absolutely necessary otherwise we're never going to get anywhere you know if someone doesn't dream that something else is possible and are driven to to, to get it we're not going to move. You know, for instance, if I talk back about my ancestors, if someone didn't say, you know, why should I be a slave? Mm. Why should I be on this plantation? You know, who is a master? How can he or she be better than me? You know, where would I be? So, um, but I think who I think is going to be the vanguard of this type of thinking are the entrepreneurs, the uh, young people now. Yeah. I, I really do believe because they don't want to do the nine to five. They want to work for themselves. And it's hard. It is hard. It's not easy because, you know, it's the one thing you know you have to pay every month is your bills. But in terms of being an entrepreneur, you might get a big contract, might get that 10,000. If you don't get it for the year, you've worked for 10,000 for the year. Yeah. So, <laughs> but yeah. you're outgoing. So, you know, about 30. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, you know, simple budgeting will show you that. So, but what I think entrepreneur uh, teaches you is resilience and determination. And you have to believe in yourself and your product. And those kind of, that kind of drive is the is the risk taking and the wealth making people but i think what is lacking is you can't just do it on your own and you will need to team up you know consortia or groups you know family and that's how you consolidate it um you can't just be just an individual that's making a lot of money you know it's it's more than that you mentioned two things that really stand out to me one of which was or at least something that i thought about while you were talking was necessity is the mother of all invention, mm -hmm. right? I feel like our generation has been sort of cornered into a, a bit of a, you know, uh, a position whereby we saw what was possible in, in 30 or 40 years time ago, mm -hmm. or years ago, should I say, in your generation's time. Mm -hmm. And we felt like we want to live that kind of lifestyle. We want to be able to afford a home pretty mm -hmm. easily. And mm -hmm. so out of that necessity, we've been forced to, you know, become entrepreneurs or do certain mm -hmm. things because we have to almost inculcate that self-belief 
that I want to achieve more than what I'm being handed yes. over, you know, what my current situation or yeah. whatever's being handed to me by the government right. for previous generations yeah. and all those types of things. So, you know, there is that sort of back against the wall mm. kind of mentality. And it's like, I got to go for, for broke because I really got not much to lose, right? right? I'm only going to get a house when I'm 35 anyway. So yeah. if I get it even at 29 or 32, yeah. I'm three or four years yes. ahead of the curve, you yeah. know? So yeah. that's one thing that stands out to me. And the second one was about risk, right? Mm. That risk aversion versus, you know, propensity to actually take on risk. It's, it's a very interesting dynamic because obviously there's a risk reward dynamic that most mm. people need to think about, right? Mm. You don't take any risks, there's no reward mm. and vice versa. Uh, I, w- I was hoping to get your thoughts on the myth that there's such a thing as sort of risk-free uh, pathways to wealth. Mm. You know what I mean? Some people think, oh, I just put it into a passive fund or whatever it is, or there is a way to achieve what I want to achieve without taking on risk. Mm. How do we sort of bust that myth and let people, you know, actually understand, look, there's a lot of risk involved if you want to become wealthy or if you really want to make that big leap because, you know, nothing comes easy. How, how do you, you mentioned, to, you alluded to it actually a bit, which was in terms of self-belief in yourself, mm. right? But mm. that whole notion of risk, how do you get someone to be able to even calibrate, you know, what risk is, what it's not, not to be too cautious, but not to be overly, you know, invested in it. How do you help someone develop that skill set? Risk management and risk analysis. I think one of the most powerful questions, which is an educational thing, is how to do something. You know, like you said that, you know, I can't afford that, but how, how do I get it? How? So your mind, it starts thinking about, well, how? First I do this and then I do this and this and then I do that. With risks, um, one of my uh, my key business partner, he's very, he, he, he takes a lot of opportunities, but at the same time, he doesn't shy away from looking at the risks. Because people think once you put down all the barriers, all the things that can go wrong, that's it. And that stops you. But no, you put them down so that you mitigate them. And that's the skill. You identify all the things that go wrong. So if that happens, then what are you going to do? Or if that happens, then what are you going to do? And the fact that you've thought ahead. So you're not just going, oh, yes, I'm going, I've designed this product. I'm going to sell a million <laughs> and I'm going to be, you know, it's going to make me a million. I'm going to sell a million and it's going to be a pound each and a million and that's it. No, you, you're, you've got to have that kind of, um, obviously that drive and passion that you think, but at the same time, uh, someone who is planning to be wealthy, they are also looking about risks and which risks they're willing to take and which risks they're not willing to take. Apparently, the first million is the hardest. After that, it becomes easier. I've heard the same yeah. thing too. <laughs> I haven't gotten to that stage yet, but hopefully I'll find out for myself. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I think it's about, as I said, it's, an, it's not about, there, there are risks, but they can be mitigated. Some of them, you you don't even need to go there. If you see it's such a red flag, then, you know, that, that, that is madness. Yeah. We don't want to all jump off the cliff together. No. Yeah. Yeah. So, but there's other ones you can look at that and you can say, well, okay, that could happen, but then what? You know, so it's like when you're starting up a business, you might say, oh, we're going to make all this. Okay. But let's have a plan. What's our break even? See, for instance, that's a form of a risk, isn't it? You know, actually working out what is the break even for that. You know, I want to, to, to I've got t-shirts at $10 each. It's going to cost me this, my printing press, that, 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 and the other. So how many do I need? So if it's going to cost break even 10,000, the point is, do you have 10,000 to lose? Or would you be willing, you and whoever your business partner, to take on that debt? And that will be okay. If that's okay, then go for it. 
But don't just, and then suddenly, oh my God, you know, there's all this and we didn't know and then your sleepless nights. No, you look at it from the beginning and that means you're planning for success and also planning to mitigate failure. There was an interesting statistic that I saw regarding sort of diversification in emerging versus developed economies. And Mm. I thought of that based on what you just said. I think on average, about 20% of people in emerging economies had a diversified portfolio, Mm -hmm. which was, you know, them leveraging or sort of managing their risk, so to speak. But Mm -hmm. in in developed economies was almost like 60% or something like that. So Mm -hmm. there's a difference there in understanding and calibrating risks, but also maybe your life circumstances dictate what kind of risks you're willing to take, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, If I lose this job, I don't have a support system. Maybe there's no social security Mm -hmm. or NHS system I can Mm -hmm. fall back on. Mm -hmm. So your level of risk is determined, I think, by yourself and, you know, your mitigating factors that you can control, but there's Mm -hmm. also some external factors that might influence that level of risk. Uh, Something else that I was thinking of was, you know, there's a sort of myth that children can't understand finances, right? Which mm-hmm. is trying to teach a 10-year-old or 11-year-old about financial literacy and you know inflation or any of these types of things. It's almost sort of way beyond them or out of their reach. Mm-hmm. But some of my friends uh, that I grew up in California or mm-hmm. wherever it is, they are very successful because they've been taught these things since yes. nine or 10 years yeah, old, right? Exactly. Where do you think this myth of children... Can, can be seen and not heard. Yeah, something like <laughs> That's that. That's very you Victorian. Know? But you know it, what I mean? It, it, like it they're not capable of learning yeah. these ty- types of things, yeah. yet they I can think, play the violin. No, I think the the 21st century now, the more that we can encourage our young people to learn, ask questions and to, to challenge, the better. Um, I think the barrier lies with the elders not being able to say it or teach it in a way that makes it accessible mm. to younger people, because that's a skill. But I think most people can understand it, you know. Um, so I, I think it's, a way, you know, finding ways of being able to teach that. Uh, for instance, um, off, off the thing, but linked to the whole thing of wealth is corruption. So let's say corruption, uh, which is usually around money, backhanders, etc., um, I was in um, Nigeria and Uganda and I was speaking about education uh, for wealth and we got onto this thing about corruption. I said, yes, I think we need to talk about that. You can teach children from primary school about ethics, about what it means to steal or do wrong or, you know, bribing. And You can teach it. So once you lay those kind of fa- fundamental f- uh, frameworks and culture of how you do things differently, then you have a chance, you know, so that people can make wealth for good. Because I think also our whole notion of money, you know, for instance, I've come through sort of like the progressive political route. And within that, you know, it's about the terrible capitalists and the like the good socialists. It's not quite like that. (laughs) It's not quite like that at all. So uh, now that I'm an entrepreneur myself, I have my own business. It is about how do we invest and uh, make money doing good, bringing the two together and actually making ethical decisions about what type of products we develop, whom, which type of customer market segment are we targeting, uh, what kind of impact are we seeking. So that it, there is a way of being like a social entrepreneur. I think there's a, a factor here, which is in terms of, you know, corruption you mentioned it's a very individualistic thing, right? I'm going to do what's right for me or I'm going to get that favor from my friend or whatever it is to get a a leg up. But once you can educate someone on the fact that this individualistic sort of mentality 
is ultimately worse for not just the people around you, but for yourself, mm. um, ultimately, because when you practice group economics mm. or, you know, everyone is in this together, it's sort of like growing the entire pie and not mm. just trying to get a bigger mm. slice of the smaller pie that's mm. there, right? Mm. You know, that mind shift to get people to think about, let's leverage our group. It could mm. be any type of identity. Yeah. It could be cultural. It could yeah. be, you know, skin color. It mm. could be gender, whatever it is. Mm. But sort of practicing group economics is something I don't see spoken about all that often or it's spoken about in very sort of abstract ways. So if you're at your company, you, you get access to perks or something like that mm. because you're part of a group there. Mm. But, we can also form our own groups in order to leverage our buying power and things like that. Okay. Uh, how do you think we can cultivate a sort of group economics type of mentality? The African Union is a is the example right now. The African Union has signed a free trade, continental free trade agreement. It is now the largest trading bloc on the planet. 54 countries. This is amazing. You know, as we've just come out of Europe, yeah? <laughs> to be on our own. Yeah. Everybody else. In fact, and it was Kwame Nkrumah uh, before the OAU who was talking about, in fact, all these ideas were first implemented by the European Union. Now, the AU. We're talking about a continental free passport. We're talking about regional currencies. So when you're talking about a block trading, that is the example right now we have on a macro, massive scale. Um, and especially as we have about, you know, five to six of the fastest growing economies on the planet, on the African continent. Africa is rebranding, redirecting, transforming itself. And so I think we need to have a different narrative. Same way in terms of the black pound. The black black pound. economics. Yes. That's interesting. Yeah, I we, heard of that. We, we haven't really looked at the purchasing power of black people in this country sufficiently. You know, people talk about, for instance, in certain other communities, the pound circulates within their community, yeah. the Jewish community, yeah. the Chinese community, mm -hmm. other communities, before it goes into the wider national pot. Whereas for the black community, we're not sufficiently buying amongst ourselves and purchasing things amongst ourselves before it's going to the wider Hot. And it's not a bad thing, right, no? to pra practice group economics. Some, no. Someone could think, oh, that's kind of racist or whatever it is. But this is something that everyone else is in on <laughs> exactly. except us, right? Exactly. Which is kind of that's a it. bit weird. Yeah, That's it. Yeah, And that's to do with education. That's to do with insufficient trust of self um, and not thinking that, oh, no, you can't trust that person. But you can trust someone else who doesn't know you, hasn't been with you, you know, not of your heritage, not of your culture, not of your lived experience. So that says a lot. So it's it's all about education. Fantastic. Well, those are most of the things we wanted to go through today. Thank you so much, Patricia. Really appreciate it. Uh, if you could just give us a couple minutes about, you know, what you do currently at your role um, and sort of a message that you'd like to get out there to the audience. You know what? I should have planned this before I came. <laughs> yeah. So um, Aspire Education Group is uh, my company. And that includes a gender-focused arm, GIDA, Gender Education Enterprise Development for Africa, and also Aspire Prep, the work that we do with young people locally. So we really try to embody uh, thinking globally and acting locally. Um, we're doing lots of events. Uh, we're even also looking for interns. That's coming up soon. <laughs> so, um, yeah. If you're interested uh, in being part of the movement, uh, in that sense, we're we're part of um, we're co-founder of something called Black Socks, okay, um, which is a, like a social action network, an economic development network, 
Um, we've just come back from Uganda. We took 10 delegates uh, to Uganda, sort of influencers to see. And we launched the report Education for Wealth, leverage, leveraging the fourth industrial revolution in Uganda. We, we printed and developed and wrote and launched that report there. And we're planning to go back with 100 people to East Africa next November. Fantastic. So, yeah. Well, I'm sure you're going to have more than 100 signups. Uh, the queue will be out the door. But um, yeah, I'm definitely appreciative of the efforts that you're making. And uh, we'll hope to have you back on the episode soon. Thank you. Cheers. Well, that's it for this week's episode of Sokka's Is That So? Today, we challenge the conventional wisdom of handling money, educating for wealth, gender disparities, and a host of other topics. We'd love to know your thoughts, so follow us on social media at Sokka's Is That So to leave your comments and thoughts. And don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an upcoming episode. Mm-hmm.